0: All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm Stephen Pesavento, your host, and I'm very grateful. I've got my friend in a real studio today, Terrence Doyle. How are you doing, Terrence?
1: Real live and in person. That's right. Steve, I'm fantastic. It's a beautiful day out, and I'm excited to be here with you.
0: This is one of the first interviews we've ever done for the Investor Mindset in person. So let's Let's get that right out of the way. Um, Terrence Doyle, of course, is the founder of the VARCO, the value-add real estate company specializing in redevelopment of multifamily across Denver and Des Moines. And for years, he's operated as a direct owner, acquiring over $60 million of assets uh, across 500 units that he's acquired and managed. And in 2020, they began syndicating, allowing over $10 million of LP investors' equity to participate so far this year. The Varco is a market leader in this midsize multifamily space, so I'm super grateful to have Terrence on and uh, to dive in to some of his specific strategies, how he thinks about doing multifamily that's very different than some of the other big players and why, in his opinion, it's the best way to do it.
1: You ready to get in things? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's rock.
0: This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Steven Pesavento. For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. All right. So as always, why don't we start out by taking a look back at earlier in your life, what events or influences from your childhood shaped you are today?
1: that's a that's a great question and something I I think a lot about Steve. I think that uh, you know the first thing that shaped who I was was I spent a lot of time growing up in Bogota, Colombia, South America. My mom was an immigrant and she came here as an exchange student. My dad was an immigrant from Canada actually they met in college, I guess uh, so to say in the middle uh, where they were geographically. And so I think growing up in a third world country did a lot to shape my mindset and who I am today I think, right off the bat, just being bilingual has ended up becoming a huge part of who I am and use it every day in, in our business today. But not only that, but just seeing a different country at such a young age, especially a country that had so much more poverty and did not have the opportunity we have in this country. And I think that that's really shaped my mindset and my perspective on life. You know, of just so much gratitude, just thankful for all the opportunity that we have just thankful for living in the country that we have, that we have so many things that most people don't even realize that we take for granted on a daily basis. So yeah, I'd say that's one of the big ones right there.
0: It's it's such a big thing that, People who have been born and raised here forget about, and you often hear about that immigrant edge—the right. the ability for somebody to do things at such a high level because they've seen what it's like on the other side. And so I can definitely tell that uh, you put that to practice in your life on the use of Spanish. I mean, how how are you using that? You know, as a as a multifamily investor in a syndicator.
1: Yeah. So, and I didn't really know that it would come back to be an advantage when I I was part of a partnership with a buddy from college in 2008 when we started flipping properties and I was more on the capital side. I was the first investor and just really along for the ride. I didn't comp any of the properties and find any of them. I was just a passive investor. But in 2014, when I got engaged to my now wife, Julie, I just made the decision that I really wanted to go full time into real estate. And so... I had to figure everything out from ground zero. So from meeting with realtors, wholesalers, door knocking, doing mailers. I mean, I was trying every strategy that you can find out there to figure out you know what my niche in the market was. And I stumbled upon, okay, once I acquired the property it funded it, now I had to figure out how to rehab and add the value. And that's really where I learned that Spanish, that the majority of the workforce in Denver was Hispanic. And speaking Spanish was a massive uh, competitive advantage. And not only that, but if you spoke Spanish and treated people well, just the fundamentals, right, of of building relationships. And if you paid on time and did all these other, I would, you know, just call them basic social skills. And so that's kind of how I was able to create kind of the company we have now is just starting from flipping single family homes and, and really building a crew of Spanish speaking subs, you know, from cabinet installers to granite installers, the tile, the flooring, the paint, roofing. I mean, every single trade, you know, I was able to kind of build up a crew that has stuck with me to this day and have been able to scale with them and just using the same kind of materials and same scope of work. You know, we've never really deviated. I've never done a pop top. I've never deviated from what we did well. And, and that's, uh, that's helped me to, I think, keep the same guys and, and have really good relationships with them.
0: Yeah, that's such a big thing. I definitely want to underline for all of you listeners there, specifically, whether you're an operator yourself or you're looking to passively invest, you want to be thinking about, well, what is how do you differentiate yourself in the market? What right. are you the best at? Because there's plenty of people who are doing this. And in a very, very competitive market, you have to be thinking about how can you find a way to be the best and niche down you know, a couple layers deeper. And for You know, for many uh, people, including myself, my way of doing that was my ability to go build a team to go get deals. That's the reason why we were able to scale up to 200. But your ability to manage heavy value add construction has been huge. And so if you're a listener, make sure that you're figuring out, well, how can I be different? You know, go and look at how you can model other people and think how they think, but then figure out, well, how can I do this better than anyone else in this specific area? So one thing that I think is different that you've done over a lot of the folks that many of our listeners follow on the syndication side is that you start out your career as a direct owner. I mean, you flipped over 700 houses mm-hmm. before you got into multi family. So that experience obviously Mm -hmm. is huge. But talk to me a little bit about some of the benefits of being a direct donor first Mm -hmm. and how that experience and frankly, getting that experience on your own dime before risking investor capitals is actually uh, really, really valuable to anybody who's going to invest with you moving forward.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point and something I've thought a lot about just as I hear, you know, all these, you know, I've read a bunch of different books on syndication, you know, when I was researching it last year, and I've heard a bunch of different people speak on it. And I do think that's one of the things that is concerning to me is that you hear a lot of people almost boast about the fact that you can have no money into a deal, you can bring in someone to put down the earnest money, bring in someone else to sign on the loan, bring in someone else to raise the money and you're just kind of sitting there in the middle with almost besides your time, no skin in the game. And yeah, like you said, I've done the complete opposite, you know, from from day 1. And I think part of what helped me was that I've been in the weeds, you know, since 2014. You know, even though I was part of Doing a bunch of flips from 2008 to 14. You know, in 2014, I really got to know every piece of the business with my own money. You know, I think I started in 2014 with maybe 150 thousand dollars in my own capital, and then I was able to leverage using, you know, some hard money, some private money, and some other things to creatively build it to where we are now. And uh, but it's just been brick by brick. You know, it's I had to learn how to flip a house. And then I lost money on probably my first three or four, and then I would do one successfully. And then I'd try and tweak it and go back and be, okay, what can we do better? What are ways we can save on material? What are ways we can save on labor? How can we do this better? What's the right price point? And so all along the way, even with flipping houses, I was just trying to perfect the model and trying to get the best return for my own capital, right? I mean, it's it was my money. I didn't really have anyone else's besides, you know, the first position lender. So then I think naturally, you know, in multifamily, my mindset was the same way. I didn't even know anything about syndication when I started buying multifamily in 2015. And so it wasn't even an option for me. It was just like, okay, here's a duplex for 240,000. I got to go piece it together and figure it out and understand how to lease it up. What is rental grade finishes versus a flip finish. So all these things I learned basically on my own dime. And I think the same thing for property management, you know, it's, the the deal doesn't stop just when you finish it and construction's done, right? I mean, you're just a, the most important thing someone could argue is the lease up. That's what determines the value, right? Is is the NOI derived by rent. And so that was a huge learning experience. You know, I've lost when we were in Des Moines and we were building, I remember we had maybe like 100 and so doors and same thing we had bought outdated just stuck to our niche, outdated, undervalued properties in Des Moines, Iowa. My dad and I were managing it. I was flying back to Des Moines every every week, every two weeks. And I remember we hired a property manager, and after six months, we were losing tens of thousands of dollars a month in delinquency, in vacancy, in overpaying for materials and for maintenance. And so then again, a light bulb went off and said, "I better figure out property management if I'm going to if I'm going to." Be in this game. And again, it was my own money, right? So I had to, I basically paid, that was my education into multifamily was understanding, okay, when construction's done, even if I hit the budget there, I'm a long way from the finish line. I still have to be able to lease this up with the right tenants, run the right background checks, and then put it in the right processes for maintenance, put in the right process for rent collection. So there's all these other things that I just, you know, between me and my brother and my dad, we learned firsthand. And I think that's what's given me the confidence now in 2020 You know, after owning 500, you know, apartments and homes on my own, you know, with my partner, I've now been able to go out there and confidently sit in front of investors and say, Hey, you can trust me with your capital because I've done it with my own. And I've, you know, I've learned along the way on how to do all these different pieces that put together, you know, the syndication. And, you know, I'm signing on the loans, I'm bringing the earnest money. We're, finding the properties, you know, I'm not, so that's, that's what's worked for me. And that's how I have the confidence to sit in front of someone, because that's the kind of person I would want to invest in basically that's been my mindset like let me build the company that i would want to invest in if i was an lp
0: yeah that's huge because i i think for many people who are just getting started they think to themselves well hey well how do i get started if i don't have experience so when they hear people talk about oh well you can get it you can get started with no money into right. it and you can find a way to get you know into the deal hey that's great there's definitely some truth to that but when you're looking at investing in somebody's deal you want to be thinking well hey do they have the experience and that's you know One of the reasons that we focus, uh, Von Finch, my company, why we focus in the area that we do is because I was an operator first and foremost. And I learned by doing and executing and realizing, oh, well, what part of the process do I like the most? I love that interaction with investors. I love being able to pitch a deal, talk about a deal. But most importantly, I really like getting to know operators who are really, really good at what they do. And I feel like that gives me, you know, a competitive advantage in the market that other people don't have. And so whenever I'm looking at an operator Whenever we're bringing a deal forward, we're always looking for operators who have lost money. Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't lose money as, for their investors, but they they had losses, they had challenges, they had things that they went through. And especially when they're risking their own capital in the deal, it's almost a you know, guarantee that we're not going to participate if the general partner is not going to put money in. So I think it's so important for you guys as investors to be thinking to yourself, when I get started, how am I going to get this experience? How can I partner with other people who have it right. and be able to move that forward? And then I think it's important when you're investing in deals to make sure that they have the kind of experience that you're talking about. It's one of the reasons we've decided to right. you know, work with you as one of our operational partners and bring capital to, to your deals as well as you know, partner on bringing things all the way across the finish lines because you guys have been in the trenches and you do things differently. But what I'm curious about, so you, you obviously were doing it yourself you know and with you know 60 million dollars mm-hmm. of of assets under management some people go and they'll look at that and they'll compare that to other people who are syndicating and someone who's syndicating may have been doing it the same number of years and they might have a much higher number but if you really think about it with a gp putting in 15% of a deal which is typical kind of a minimum that general partners will put in that would put your That would put you at about 300 million plus of assets under management if you'd been syndicating the whole time. So, for somebody who is taking all the pie, taking down all the profit, and therefore also taking all the risk, why did you decide to start syndicating and letting, you know, limited partners or passive investors start participating in your deals?
1: Yeah, this is something I spent a lot of time thinking about, and you and I have had some great discussions on this. I think huge huge. for years. For years, yeah, I think. (laughs) I think back to a couple of dinners we had in Cherry Creek and I was like, man, this is just the best model. This is the only way, you know, that the tax benefits, having the control, not having to deal with LPs that want that are having a bad day or scared of the market or scared of an election or all these different things that come up with LPs Huge. when they're investing, there's a lot of there's a there's definitely a lot of hurdles. The big thing for me was I wanted to build a team. You know, coming from a sports background, I played sports my entire life, and for me, The light bulb went off and said, "If you want to be the best at what you do in the two markets where you're focused on, which is Denver and Des Moines, Iowa, I had to be able to build a team." And I think what happened, and it kind of forced my hand, was you know my business partner, after a five year run, came to me and said, "Hey, I want to spend more time with my family. We had we'd had a really good run, and he just wanted to spend time with his family and kind of take a step back and retire a little bit." Mm -hmm. And so that. That hard. kind of forced me yeah. And so when you when you have a company of three it was he basically ran all the back office and I handled more of the sourcing and the construction and, and the operations day to day on the site, on the job site. and then you replace someone that wears 20 hats, you know you have to replace them with three or four people. you know It wasn't just like I can go hire him out because he, he him and I did so many things and and had worked so well together. And so when I had to hire a CFO, and then a project manager cuz you know then I was going to be in the office more overseeing the finances and helping with the back office and all these other things that were really critical to the to growing I just it made sense to transition to using our business model and ability to execute on the strategy of value add real estate specifically in multifamily in Denver was to be able to raise money from LPs have them you know Pay the company fees for us to execute the model and still deliver really you know great returns, which I which I had been doing in in these both of these markets you know for the last five years, and and that was the best way I saw to be able to build a team and hire the right people. Is now I have the have the income every month from the fees that we generate to have you know, in my opinion the, you know a great construction manager, which you help introduce us to a project manager, you know a gal that's in charge of client services. I have another gal that all she does is when you know, she kind of plays in between construction and property management. So when when a unit's finished, she helps stage it, takes the pictures, makes sure that it feels, and I think you probably saw it at, at the building you're staying at, is, you know, we want to make it feel like home, you know, and that takes work. It's not really a property manager's job to do that, and it's definitely not my construction manager, so it kind of falls in between. So a little higher these positions that I learned through the last four or five years of just being in battle every day, that this, this is what we need to have a great team. And syndication was the way to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's one of the best ways to get economies of scale. Right. It's because you can, uh, by doing many more deals and frankly, sharing a big part of the pie with the passive investor, you're able to start getting consistent income rather than just waiting for the very end at the right. sale, because when you're you know essentially flipping multifamily apartments, when you're buying and selling something mm-hmm. within three to five year period, majority of the profit is coming at the end. So majority of the time you're having to wait until the end to start getting that profit. And the same is true when you're syndicating. But by being able to do it at scale, now you can start to afford to start paying for some of those high level positions so that you can really set yourself up for success. Yeah, absolutely. And so you've really focused on the Denver market and specifically mid midsize multifamily family, which is counterintuitive to what you hear from a lot of the big syndicators. And when I say midsize multifamily, I'm talking about, you know, between 30 to 50 unit buildings, sometimes smaller, but uh, for the most part, they're in that range. And so they're not hitting that hundred unit uh, size component that you're often hearing people say that, oh, it's a must. If you're going to be in apartments, you've got to be at this level. Why are you doing it the way you do it? And and is there an advantage there?
1: Yeah. So you know, I, I fall kind of to the same mindset sometimes if, of, you know, bigger is better. And, you know, I see every day almost people posting, you know, on LinkedIn or on YouTube, they bought a hundred unit, a 200 unit, a 300 unit, a 400 unit. And sometimes in my mind, I'm like, man, maybe I need to focus on larger buildings and, and things like that. And so my mind can wander. Those vanity uh-huh. metrics are very attractive, you know? So what I've what I've tried to focus on is just to become the best at what I do and where the where I have a competitive advantage. And and I, I think in the Denver market, which would be, you know, you put that in the same class as like Seattle, LA, New York, Austin, Nashville. I mean, it's appreciated a ton. It's doubled or tripled since 2010. Rents have doubled or tripled since 2010. Migration's in the top five. I think you look at almost any chart put out there by a data company uh, surrounding multifamily real estate and Denver's in the top five, especially you know, in regards to, you know, the recovery from the pandemic. I mean, a lot of people are moving here. I mean, the metrics for Denver are really, really good. And so what that, what that means on the multifamily side is there's a lot of competition, and competition not by people like you or I, but competition by people that are institutions that are backed by pension funds or like uh, large institutional organizations that get capital really cheap, and they can pay way more because their metrics look much different. You know, if, if I'm raising capital for a deal... You know, I need to be at or above a twenty IRR. You know, and a a multiple on invested capital probably around a two. And these companies that we're competing with, it's significantly less. I mean, I think if they're producing a six or seven percent yield, they're happy, right? I mean, that hits that more than that more than surpasses the yield they're looking for. You know, with the treasury being so low. And so, when you have that much competition for the larger deals, and so many people are chasing yield. You know what where we've found our niche you know over the last four or five years is just buying under that, where the returns can hit our profile, but the gross dollars are not high enough to get the interest of these institutional investors. so there's not a lot of competition. So where we mostly find ourselves is you know we're the only offer. we're dealing sometimes directly with a seller or with a broker we've known a long time that we've done a lot of deals with. And we're not having we're not getting bid up. You know, you and I were just talking about, you know before we started recording, you know, how both of our single family homes this summer had multiple offers and went way over asking, Huge, right? And so we don't want to be in that position when I'm buying and representing investors and I have my own capital. I want to be in a place where there's as little competition as possible and where we have, and that magnifies our competitive advantage of being able to get construction done cheaper and faster and and maximize leases and lease rates for that zip code. And so that's what we've been able to focus on is just where's our competitive advantage? It's, you know, kind of under... We actually took down a 95 unit earlier this year. That's a motel conversion. So I would say it's between 20 and 100 units and it's deep value add. It's got normally a lot of vacancy. It's ton of deferred maintenance, a bunch of capex that hasn't been, you know, taken care of in the last couple of years. So it's like, we're talking roofs, windows, sometimes foundations, boilers. I mean, all the major big ticket items, but with our With our relationships that we've developed in construction since since the beginning, we've been able to do those things at scale much cheaper and faster than our competition, which is where we've been able to create our niche.
0: Yeah. And so that's the big difference is that you're looking where other people aren't because right. they're from out of town. They don't have the ability to do the construction in the same way with the same cost efficiencies. And frankly, they're not local. That's right. You know, they're coming in from New York and LA with big, big pots of money and they're happy to buy it a, you know, a three or four cap. They're happy to give a six or seven return to investors, but they are looking to take the littlest amount of risk. And so they're looking for things that don't have that... Co- quite as much value add, but by focusing on this area, you're able to end up adding way more value and not be in that kind of competition. So I think it's really, really smart, but it's interesting because you're going to hear, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend the same model in another market. It's, it's specific to Denver. It's specific to some of these big cities. And that's why when you're, if you're an operator and you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, well, that would never work where I am in, in, in Columbus, Ohio, or in, uh, you know Kansas City well it might but the difference is that uh you've got to figure out well where are you going to really slide in so what i'm curious about is why institutional investors haven't slid in and started buying in that area you know if if they're able to get a 20% return that seems very very appealing
1: i think the big reason is a lot of those a lot of institutional investors in Denver specifically, they need to allocate a certain gross dollar amount. And most of those guys are playing in the, they won't even look at a deal under $20 million. So, you know, they want, obviously they would love a 20% return, but they're not set up to manage construction and property management the way that we are. There's too many moving parts. And so it doesn't allow companies at that size to be able to scale. And it actually, cost them way too much money to be able to do because of our size we're able to do things that a larger company wouldn't be able to do. And so when they look at, you know, allocating 20 or 30 or 40 million dollars in a in a market on a deal, they're not they're not set up to have multiple full-time construction managers on site and to be able to handle leasing up 50 or 60% of that building. It's a much different game than turning one unit at a time and just managing a property when you have turnover.
0: So when you're buying when you're buying these buildings, to be clear for listeners, you're typically rehoming all of the tenants, finding new homes for all the current tenants, and then you're renovating all of those units at once or in phases, mm-hmm. where you're doing all of that work, completely changing
1: the profile of the tenant from what it was until something new. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. But we've done we've done both strategies, and we can do both strategies. It just depends on the property. If a property's in. Think about it from, you know, you're looking for a place to live right now. You know, if a property's in really poor condition and has roaches and mold and leaking roofs, the people that are living there are going to be different than once you renovate it and now you're going to release it. And the person that's going to come in there and pay market rent or sometimes above market rent for a brand new building with amenities and everything completely brand new, they're going to expect the same kind of person as their neighbor, right? And so sometimes in those really deep value add projects, what we do is come in there is work with the previous owner on helping to transition the current tenants. And most of them are not there by choice, they'd rather move to another place. But because Denver's appreciated so much, they don't have a lot of options. So what we do is create options for them of different places they can go, we pay for their moving, we help them transition pay for their deposit to make sure that they're in a safe and comfortable place and allow us to with less risk execute on our strategy of completely turning the building over and making it a safe and comfortable place. You know, my baseline of the buildings and the projects we do is I want to build a place that I would want to live in. You know, it may not I may not be able to live in there because I have a family now, but it's a place that if I were in this stage of life single or newly married, this is the kind of place I would want to live with the kind of finishes I would want to see every day. And so we we do that strategy. We also will do, we'll turn units one by one, but it has to be in a building where the hallways, the roofs, and it doesn't have as much capex. And it's not, it hasn't been as poorly deteriorated as yeah, you know, as the first uh, example, and then you know in Des Moines, Iowa, we definitely have several properties over 100 units where we've done kind of what you see a typical you know model. We've just been able to buy it at such a low basis to where we've been able to turn them you know slowly, just like you see in in most you know typical syndicators models. And so I've done all of the all of the options. It just so happens that we were able to get better returns and much wider margins by taking properties that people don't want to deal with. Most people are scared of construction. Right, they most most real estate investors sure. would say
0: that there's a lot of risk in construction if you're of, not good yeah. at managing construction. Percent,
1: and if you talk to an investor that's done flips or rentals, they would say the times where they've lost money is when they've it's been in construction. They trusted the wrong contractor, huge, or, or you know x number of issues and examples of what's happened there. So, I would just say that's where we can use our experience and our relationships to kind of magnify our competitive advantage is going to places that people are concerned or scared of going.
0: So like a a perfect example is you know, for all the listeners, I sold my house a few months ago to maximize the return on investment because of the timing. And so I left. I went to Hawaii for a few months. I'm back. And I'm actually staying in one of the properties that you've renovated in a neighborhood that is one of the top neighborhoods, I think, in Denver, in Lohi, for all of you people who know Denver very well, just outside of downtown. And this is a property that's, you know, about 20 units. And I used to run by this property all the time. And it was a a complete... Dump this really place. Yeah, that, really that is sad. that is a understatement of how bad this property was. But in this is one of those cases where you actually needed to you know rehome all those tenants because the people who are living there are not the same person who's going to now live there now. You know after you've renovated it, you know I wouldn't have moved in with next to the tenants that were there now. I'd be happy to live in this place because I'm I'm just like astonished mm-hmm. <laughs> at the kind of turnaround that that's happened in a property like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's sad what goes on. You know, we actually bought that property from the owner who built it in the sixties, him and his mm-hmm. dad. And he over levered several times, made some bad investment decisions, and before you know it, he had no money to fix up any of the issues in the building. So there was mm-hmm. leaks everywhere, mold everywhere, roaches, bed bugs everywhere. And you had prostitution everywhere, drug. Wow. I mean, it was really, really sad. So in a situation like that. There's an and half- This is in a million dollar oh, yeah. neighborhood oh, surrounded by seven-figure homes and multiple class A apartment buildings, hundred million dollar projects. And but you know, the people living there, half of them weren't even paying. You know, so you get in these situations sometimes where you're, you know, we're forced to start from scratch and help the people that are there find a better place to live that's safer, comfortable, and better for their situation. And So it just, it depends on, you know, we're flexible. It just depends on the property and then we can pick, you know, which tool to use for that specific project.
0: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. You want to be thinking about, well, in which way can I best get the return that I'm looking for and do it as quickly as possible in the safest way.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so in some of those deals, you know, people are going to look at it and they see when they hear the word 20% IRR, they think, oh, that's a, that's a huge return, but, but why? you know, when people are used to getting a 10% IRR, 15% IRR, what's the difference here? Why are you able to achieve such a big swing in some of these deals? And we're not talking about future results. We're talking about the past here. We're not making any offerings to be very clear, but what's the difference here on the kind of deals that you're putting together that are able to end up leading to just frankly, you know, very sizable returns?
1: Yeah. And in my world, like a 20, and this may sound, this may hit, strike people the wrong way, but that's like just what I've done. That's all I've known. You know, coming from, flip, again, I started out flipping homes. So, what do you do when you're flipping homes? You're trying to find distressed properties. You're, you're trying to find motivated sellers that are in, in some kind of life event that need you to move quickly. And so, that's been my mentality since I started in 2008. I mean, we used to show up at the county courthouse and buy homes in Denver for fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 that were just completely depleted. And so, that's all that I've known. And so when I transitioned to multifamily, I kept that same mentality where when I was meeting with brokers or with sellers, I had a very similar formula to when I was flipping homes. You know, I wanted to buy it, you know, 20% under market and then subtract the construction. And that's what I've been able to do. And I think and a lot of people would say the deals that we're doing, you know, they don't exist in Denver. And then I show them how we've been able to do it time after time and i think the key one of the keys is we've built strong relationships we have a track record and i think the third and most important for people out there that are looking to do the same thing or to source more opportunity is we had a really clear buy box we were very clear about here are the num- here's what the numbers need to look like here's where we need rents to be after construction here's where i need the yield to be after construction what i'm the current cap rate is irrelevant to me as long as Once it's stabilized, I'm at this number, right? And that number is normally around an eight percent yield after construction. And so, by being very clear with what I need for a deal to work for our company, it's helped crystallize it for brokers and other people in the market. I've I've had people that aren't even brokers bring me deals, so it's not just brokers. But it's it's helped crystallize. Here's the target that I need to hit, so then they can be successful, right? And it kind of goes back to empathy. If I'm the more clear I am and, and the more I can help someone set them up for success, and success would look like bringing me a deal in this example so that they can get paid and we can have a project, then, then the more deals I'm going to have. And that's just how it's worked, even in a market like Denver, is just being very, very clear about here's what we need. You know, everyone likes to throw around, oh, I just want a deal, or I want this, or I want a six cap, or, you know, people throw around all these different terms, right, in different markets. But most of the time, it's, hey, I want a really de- a good deal. Mm-hmm. And that means nothing. Yeah, yeah. What, what is a good yeah. deal?
0: It's like the worst thing whenever I'm talking to buyers when I was you yeah. know, wholesaling properties after we stopped flipping. It was like, okay, well, you'll buy anything, uh, and then usually the answer is no, I'm not going to buy anything. I mean, but when you can have that kind of clarity in what you're looking for, it gives people the opportunity to be able to say, yes, I actually know someone who might be able to help you. I actually know somebody or a property specifically that's going to fit. And your name comes to mind when they think of something that hits that buy box. So that's that's really huge. And the other thing I want to underline here is just breaking that mindset, that belief that, oh, it's not doable in Denver. You can't do investment real estate in Denver because you, know, you happen to live in a, a very, very competitive city. You know, for all the people who are living in LA or New York or, you know, some of these markets that are growing absolutely insane, even in the midst of the recession or COVID pandemic that we're dealing with right now, people are thinking to themselves, I could never do real estate in my own backyard. Well, that's not true because people are doing it. You just got to figure out, well, what is the thing that's going to be unique to you that's going to allow you to do that?
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, 100%, you know, I'm living testimony of that, of all through the last four or five years, multifamily is so hot. Denver's one of the top markets. There's no deals. There's no value-add deals. There's, you know, all those things just continually. And still to this day, people like to say those kind of things. And I just feel like if you're going back to sports and that analogy of just fundamentals, you know, if, if you're focused on the fundamentals of building relationships, being very clear with your communication, and you know you know what you're looking for. And I'm continually crystallizing what we're looking for. You know, every deal we get better and better at communicating, okay, these locations, these zip codes, this kind of crime, you know, these are the things that we will do. These are the things we can't do. And you're continually refining, you know, that box. And the better you get at that, I think the better you'll see results as far as looking at more opportunities. And that's, that's been my experience.
0: Huge. Well, we're, we're going to have to have you back for a deeper dive on the construction side. So I think I could spend a whole episode with you on this, but talk to me a little bit about what what's the differentiator that makes somebody very, very successful at construction on these multifamily uh, projects versus, you know, the teams or the the projects that end up falling or, you know, falling through the cracks or failing?
1: There's so many things that go into construction and construction is so difficult. I can't stress (laughs) that enough. It's really, really hard. It's One of the harder things that we do every day, but I love it. I love being able to take something that's completely outdated, abandoned, misused, and bring it back to life, you know, just like we did at the building you're in. I mean, that's one of the things I enjoy most. You know about this besides the relationships that I'm able to build and working with my team is just seeing the before and after of the the transformation of once you come in there, execute the plan, and, and seeing what a building can be like. Especially these brick buildings around Denver, I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love what the brick looks like after it's painted, after it's been restored. Uh, it's amazing. The number one thing, and this is cliche, and again, it's fundamentals, but it's attention to detail. You mm-hmm. know the. If you go three or four hundred dollars over budget every unit, and you have fifty units, you're you're one hundred fifty thousand dollars over budget, or whatever that number. I mean, a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's it's every that it's every it's been it's and and our project manager, you know, he's he gets so annoyed with me on every pay period, but I go through every single paycheck and I look at every single ICA independent contractor agreement, which is the contract we sign with. Our crews before we start a project, just to make sure that what they're saying we owe them is exactly what we owe them. And I'm looking at, you know, how much was finished versus how much we said needed to be finished when they get their next paycheck. There's just so much room because the construction world is so antiquated and technology has not made construction faster and cheaper. It's actually been the opposite. It's one of the things that is really concerning is that, you know, even though technology has made our lives so much better and faster and more efficient. Construction has gone the opposite way Mm. the last 20 years, Mm. right? So this is one of the things that I'm constantly thinking about, you know, being an entrepreneur is, you know, what are things that I can do to help make our team more efficient, help our subs be more efficient so that construction isn't more expensive every year for us, right? So materials aren't more expensive. But I just think it's attention to detail. I mean, we grind over every single dollar. And I think going back to one of your initial questions of why direct ownership has been so good for me is, that's the only way I know how to think now. Even when I have LPs, I still treat it as if every dollar is mine because yeah. that's how it's been basically my whole career. Of every single dollar if I'm over budget or if a contractor uh, I overpay him by not checking the contract and checking the you know the paycheck and and seeing the pay schedule, it's on me. It's my money. Yeah. And and I just think you have to have that mentality that every single dollar, I mean we grind over literally 50 cents a square foot on tile, on flooring, on paint. I mean, we're constantly just trying to figure out how we can get everything to its lowest common denominator and help our crew be more successful, more efficient. How can we help them make more money help, and in turn help us save money, you know, with time and being under budget? And so I, it's, it's very difficult. It's, it's something that I think, you know, we have a labor shortage in our country. It's something I'm really passionate about of helping, you know, kids in high school and college see that, man, you can do really well without getting into debt, going into college. You know, mm-hmm. there's, you know, being in labor, electrician, HVAC, plumbing, carpentry, there's so much opportunity in our country if you're really skilled, skilled labor. Oh, for sure. And you can make the, really, really good really money, good money You know, and you can go to CU Boulder and be $200,000 in debt and come out with a marketing degree and be making thirty five, forty thousand dollars $40,000 your first year living with your parents, you know? Totally. And so, it's, you know, starting a trade school, you know, just, Online course, you know, there's all these ideas that we've been floating around that I really want to execute on because it's really a passion of mine of just how many, how many of the next generation is planning on going to a four year school and not even knowing what they want to do. Yeah. When if if we change the story of hey you can you could be out you could by the time you're 22 right four years after high school you could be a fully licensed plumber electrician making 100 to 200 thousand dollars in a city like Denver yeah. and no debt and own your own company own a house maybe even your office building and I just think that. You know, we've fallen into this storyline of you have to go to college to be successful or you need a four year degree to do whatever, you know, and there are some trade, you know, there, there's definitely some occupations like I want my doctor to have a degree, right? I mean, there's certain occupa- occupations we want to go to school, but I think that construction is one of those that's ripe for disruption. And I think that, you know, in the next couple of years, that's probably one of my passion projects that I really want to spend time, more time and focus on because I think it's something we need, you know, in our country.
0: Yeah, that's something we definitely have to talk more about. But that attention to detail, I think, is so important. It's something I always look for in operators that we work with. So this has been great. I feel like we could keep talking all day. We probably will after we get done with this. Uh, But in closing, where can people find out more about you or get in touch?
1: Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn at Terrence Doyle, Instagram. You can go to our website at the And yeah, I'd love to always chat with people on there. Love looking at deals, love answering questions and just love talking about real estate. It's one of my my passions for sure.
0: We'll include all that in the show notes. So thanks so much for being here with us. Super, super fun. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. If you're an accredited investor and you're interested in learning more about our investment opportunities, the exact types of investments that I personally invest in, then head over to the slash invest, or send me an email at stephen at vonfinch.com. That's V-O-N-F-I-N-C-H dot com. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend.